All right, family, here we are. It's summer, it's June, Ephesians is over, and it's time to move on. And so I'm going to invite you to grab your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Psalms. And uh, today we are going to begin a, a series uh, that will probably last forever. Um, <clears throat> though we will not be in it continually forever, um, we are going to begin uh, to walk through the Psalms. We're going to take this summer, uh, and we'll be in the Psalms all through the summer, uh, and then probably at the end of summer we'll hit the pause button, and we'll jump into something else. And from time to time, we may come back and visit the Psalms again. Uh, and if not between now and next summer, then, then probably next summer, pick it up again and be in the Psalms for the summer again. And uh, there's 150 of them, and so we have much uh, food uh, to partake of there together. And so for uh, the remainder of this summer, that's where we're going to be. Um, probably skipping around in the book a bit, um, but... Through uh, the course of time, uh, pray that we will together journey through much, uh, if not all, of the Psalms. And I believe that it will be very, very good. So that's where we're going to be today. We're actually going to be in Psalm 145 as our text, but we're not going to read it right away. Uh, because my job today is kind of to begin to unpack uh, why the Psalms? Why are we going here? What's this about? And and what do we have to gain from the Psalms? And so uh, the word Psalms, the title of the book Psalms, uh, is from the Greek. Psalmos, or Psalmoi, means instrumental music, literally, or by implication, because we don't have any musical notation, uh, just words. By implication, it literally means the words that uh, accompany the music. That's what, what it means. Uh, the Hebrew title of the book is Tehillim, which means praises, or literally the book of praises. And it's easy to look at the book of Psalms, and anyone who has, who has been a Christian for a while or been in the church for a while, you know the book of Psalms, right, it's that book that's kind of in the middle of the book. If you, if you kind of helps you know where to get everywhere else, if you just kind of open to the middle, you know, chances are you're going to be somewhere near Psalms, right? And I can know I can go left, I can go right, I can start to figure stuff out. Uh, if you spent any time in Sunday school, then you probably know that much of the book of Psalms was written by David. Um, now, it wasn't the whole book. In fact, it's right almost exactly at... Half of the book is attributed to David. There are 73 uh, psalms that are explicitly attributed to David uh, in the book itself. And then there are two additional psalms in the New Testament that are referenced as being by David. And Scripture interprets Scripture. And so we'll say, man, okay, 75 that we know of uh, are by David. And there's 150, so half the psalms are by David. Uh, King David of the giant slaying type, all right? That's who we're talking about, that King David is the one who wrote nearly half of the Psalms, at least half 
of the Psalms. This is why when we talk about David, we refer to him as the warrior poet of the Bible. Because he was a warrior, and yet he was also a poet. And, and he was this man that God himself said, here is a man after my own heart. And then we don't just get to hear God say that, here is a man after my own heart. From the Psalms, we get to see the heart of that man. As we don't just see uh, explanations of facts that took place, but in the midst of the facts that took place that we have in the books of Kings and of Chronicles and of First and Second Samuel, we then get insight into the emotional state of mind of this man, King David, this man who was a man after God's own heart, this giant slayer. And so here we have this book, 150 Psalms, 150 songs, 150 chapters in this book, the largest book in the Bible, and it's a book of poetry. It's a book of songs, which is interesting to us because far removed from the last five centuries, we have become a people who are very unpoetic. Our language has lost a lot of its prose in general. Uh, our poetry now exists in emoticons, right? There, there, is a, there is a certain amount of loss that we have suffered as a people when it comes to expressing the inner places of the heart. And here in the book of Psalms, God, by His Spirit, gives us the language of the soul. Anyone who has gone through difficult circumstances and have found themselves in the Psalms can attest to that fact that somehow it is like Psalms reads you instead of you reading the Psalms. And why is that? It's because here God has given us the language of the soul. And it's an interesting book because it is poetry. And so there's a lot of figurative language. There's a lot of, of anapomorphic language where, where human-like tendencies are assigned to very unhuman things. The trees of the forest clap their hands. The, the, the fields, you know, dance. There, there's all these things happening in the book of Psalms because it is poetry that, that gives life and language and animates the world around us in a way that that we don't often see with the naked eye, but only can see through the soul. And so it's poetry. And yet, even as poetry, quite literally a book of songs, or we could even say it's the Bible's hymn book, and yet in these hymns, in these songs, in this poetry, there's portions of historical narrative. Descriptions of 
historical events, accounts of God's historical faithfulness to his people as well as to individuals. So much so that Luther would refer to the book of Psalms as a little Bible inside of the Bible. Because there's so much that we glean from the Psalms that actually informs us about this God that the rest of the Bible talks about. Again, with the language of the soul, we begin to see in, into the happenings. There, there's the difference, even as, even as um, Blake shared with us the Belgian Confession, talking about the providence of God, and yet we got to see from this letter to this man's wife, insight into his soul behind these things that he was writing. It's more than just words on a page. And even the historical things that happen in the Old Testament, the narratives that we have in, in the books like Genesis and Exodus and, and uh, First and Second Samuel and the Kings and the Chronicles and, and all of these things. We, we have these historical facts, but we, also, we often have them, not always, but often have them removed from the emotion of the event. And here in the book of Psalms, we begin to perceive the emotion in the event. Not only the fallible emotions and affections of God's people, but we also begin to perceive the perfections of God. And how that those circumstances around us may change. And these events do take place. And often it seems as if God has forgotten his people. Yet through the book of Psalms we see that God's perfect love for his people has never failed. Even in times where it seemed like he had abandoned them. That was truly not the case. Even when the psalmist would dare to say to God, you have broken your covenant, which certainly is not the case, we find that God was still upholding the son of David who would ascend the throne and reign forever, even though at the time there was not a son of David on the throne in Israel. And so we see, even in these songs, this hymn book, moments of narrative, description, accounts of God's historical faithfulness to his people as well as individuals. But there's also laments something that is in many ways lacking from our worship in the church today. I love Psalm 126 and that we've begun to sing that together because we're affirming, we're admitting that there are times when we are actually weeping. That we don't have to exist in this place uh, 
accepting the narrative of the world that says that we have to exist in this place where we can have the power of positive thinking and just pretend like bad things don't happen and maybe they'll happen less. That's not true. It's a lie. It's a deception. And we're invited in the Psalms and through the rest of Scripture to enter into those seasons and those times of lament and admit just like so many times we've gone to 2 Corinthians chapter together and have admitted perplexion. We've admitted persecution. We've admitted these things and said that in this moment it's okay to admit and to affirm that we are perplexed, that we feel persecuted. And yet to remember with the children of Israel singing in the Psalms that even in the midst of our perplexion that God has not abandoned us Though we feel pressed in, we are not crushed. And ultimately, this is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we can sing, though we are weeping, though we, though we, though we are sowing seeds of weeping, that we're going to choose to sing and rejoice in a God that we believe will cause us to reap a bountiful harvest of joy. There's laments, cries of woe and pain and mourning. Calvin would say of the Psalms that in them we find the complete range of human emotion. That there's nothing lacking in the Psalms. That if there is some form of emotion in you because of your circumstances, whether to the highest of sanguine highs or the lowest of melancholy lows, that in the Psalms you will find language for the condition of your heart. Not only that, but you'll find as you journey through the Psalms, as I pray that you have done and as we will do together, that there's even psalms of cursing. Psalms that say, happy is the man that dashes this man's children into the rocks. That's in the Bible. And God commands us to sing stuff like that. I don't know what else to say, but... Wow. Why? It's difficult for us to, to wrestle with these things. I think that's why so many times when we come to the Psalms, sometimes we, we, we almost don't know how to take them. Right? So much is the range of human emotion from the highest of sanguine highs to the lowest of melancholy lows that some people from them have said that David was bipolar. And I can take comfort in that. Because <laughs> sometimes I feel the same way. Now, I'm not saying that he was. But that gives us an idea of, of just how broad the range of emotion that can be found in the book of Psalms is. And again, it, what does it do? It gives language to the condition of our heart. What does this mean? It means that we can find great comfort and healing in these psalms. I 
how many times have you found yourself in a place where you say, I just don't even know what to say. Not only do I not even know what to say, I, in this moment right now, I don't, I don't even know how to pray. Now I know that we go to Romans and we say that when we don't know how to pray that the Spirit will give us utterance. Can I tell you He has? He's given you utterance right here in the book of Psalms, the language of soul. God's word expired, breathed out for you the complete range of human emotions so that when you don't know what to say and you don't know how to pray, you don't have to wait and try to meditate and concentrate just enough that somehow God is going to like do hocus pocus magic on you and make words pop into your brain. Rather, you can pick up the Word of God and you can open the Psalms and begin to read from the Psalms and believe me, the Spirit is going to begin to give you utterance according to the way and the things that you should pray. Have you ever struggled with praying in general? Go to the Psalms. Go to the Psalms and learn how to pray. Go to the Psalms and learn what to pray. Learn not only how and what to pray, but even learn the attitude to approach God in. And you may be surprised at what you find there. Psalm 89, Scripture, the psalmist, says to God, but you have broken your covenant. Now, I'm not necessarily going to take a sign up for who wants to pray that way. I think many of us, myself included, are probably scared to pray that way. Now thankfully we know that God didn't break His covenant and that can inform our prayers as well. But what that shows us is that even in those moments where we feel like that is what has happened, though it may not be the truth that God does not restrict us from praying in that way. That means that there's great freedom to express in honesty the true emotions and feelings and thoughts and intents of our heart to God. I don't know that any of us have an earthly relationship 
where we are not in some way, shape, or form constantly engaged in the censorship of our own thoughts. Is there truly anyone on earth that we could actually go and say everything that we're thinking to them? The answer is no. And yet in the Psalms we find that God is the one who can receive every single range of emotion that we may have. Go to the Psalms. We have these Psalms of cursing, imprecatory Psalms they're called. They make us uncomfortable. But then we have the ones that we really like, which are the Psalms of exclamations of praise, which are the ones we're probably better at singing these days. Exclamations of praise, worship, and adoration. But not only that, did you know that the Psalms were full of prophecy? That even in the New Testament, in fact, the Psalms is the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Jesus quoting it, the disciples quoting it, the apostles quoting it in their letters to the church and in their instruction, showing a connection between the Psalms and the life of Jesus. Now let's not forget that King David, who wrote at least half of the Psalms, so much so that we could say that Psalms is the king's book, is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Though he is writing things that he actually experienced, this is where we get uh, part of the idea of what we call the double fulfillment of prophecy, where there are at times in the prophetic places of Scripture a double fulfillment. So that when we can go to a place like Psalm 22, where we know from the cross now that Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? that though when David wrote that, he probably was writing that from his own experience. That there was something about what he was going through that from the honesty of his own experience, he is writing, he's expressing, he's emoting, he is, he is, he is uh, worshiping, and in this, he's declaring this in this Psalm 22. And yet there was this double fulfillment where we can come and we can say, However, David may have experienced what he was going through and how he described it here, we now see that that most definitely and accurately expresses what Christ was going through at the cross. And so there's this beautiful connection between the life of Jesus and his work for us in, on our, in our place and the Psalms. And as we journey through the Psalms, we begin to see that this book, too, is about our Savior. And though it may be the king's book because David wrote it, it truly is the king's book because it's about the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we see prophecy about the coming Messiah of whom David was a type of the antitype, the true and better giant slayer, Jesus of Nazareth. And yes, there are also great songs of comfort, hope, healing, and freedom. 
And so as we journey through these psalms, I pray that those are some of the themes that you see, that, that we will see them. And sometimes some of these things are combined in one psalm. In one psalm, we might see some historical narrative and some description of things that actually took place and, and then announcements of woe against God's enemies and, 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 then, and then questions to God about His faithfulness and then a declaration that He is indeed faithful. We may see some of those things all in one psalm. Because of that, I think that it's easy to go to the psalms and think that they're just like 150 different individual psalms and, and they're not in any particular order and you could just kind of like mix them together like a deck of cards and, you know, fan them out and just pick one. I think that's often how we come to them. But actually, if you look at it and you read through the book of Psalms, you find that in the English and also because it is there in the Hebrew that the book is actually divided into five parts or five books. Psalm 1 through 41, or book 1. And uh, in his recent book, W.R. Godfrey, who is a church historian and has written a book, a very helpful book recently called um, Learning to Love the Psalms, he actually titles these books. And I think that the books, the titles that he gives to these five books are helpful. Because in book 1... Psalm 1 through Psalm 41, we see what he describes as the king's confidence in God's care. The king's confidence in God's care. And what you find as you read the Psalms from book 1, from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41, you find a, a, not completely, but a very individualistic expression of David and the other psalmists' confidence in God's care, that he is able to provide, that he is able to uh, give what needs to be given. And then you move into book 2, which is Psalm 42 through Psalm 72. And here Godfrey titles this book, The King's Commitment to God's Kingdom. The King's Commitment to God's Kingdom. And in these psalms we see an expression of the writers who, who are committed to the kingdom that God is building. A commitment to the, the kingdom that God is ruling. That even though uh, in the beginning this nation of Israel was meant to be a theocracy that was led by God and later they rebelled and said give us a king and God gave them the desires that they had and they had a king. Here in these books we see a commitment of that king to God's actual rule. Acknowledging him as the true king and the king's commitment to God's kingdom. Because it's about the kingdom. Now in these psalms we see a more communal aspect. Whereas book one has more of an individualistic aspect, book two has more of a communal aspect. And so in these psalms we begin to get language about what it means to be the people and the nation of together. And then we move into book three. Book 3 is the shortest of the books and it's probably one of the most difficult because book 3, Psalms 73 through 89, here are titled 
the king's crisis over God's promises. And these are those psalms that we can dig into and begin to relate to in times that we feel like heaven has been shut up. Anyone ever been there besides me? Here in these psalms, we have the language of the soul that begin to describe the inner turmoil of the psalmist as he's wrestling over the fact that God has made promises that right now in the moment seem like he is not kept. And then after this declaration that God has not kept his covenant, that he's broken his covenant in Psalm 89, we turn the page and we enter into book four. And in book four, what we begin to see is the king's comfort in God's faithfulness. That though there was a season where it seemed like God was not keeping his promises, that now the veil has been taken away and the king begins to see that God is indeed the only true promise keeper. And so the king takes comfort in God's faithfulness in book four. And then book five, we finally, really, truly get into the Tehillim. Remember, in Hebrew, this is the book of praises. And here in book 5, in Psalms 107 through 150, we finally begin to see where the book has taken us through God's care, a revelation of His kingdom, this wrestling through His promises and then seeing His faithfulness. And then the book begins to just elicit from God's people praises to this God who is a promise keeper, who does keep His covenant, who has formed this family together and even within this family cared for each individual member of it. And so though these things seem like they're disjointed and disconnected, there really is a form to the book. And so I pray that we will see it as we walk through it. And each book, each of the five books, ends with a doxology or benediction. And book five ends with five of them. Psalm 145 through Psalm 150 are five doxological benedictions to the whole book of praises. And so today, that's where we're going to go, just quickly in closing, to Psalm 145. Now, we're not going to walk through and exegete each verse of Psalm 145, but we're going to read sections of it together and draw just one thing out of each section that I believe we can actually learn from the entire book of Psalms. And so let's look at Psalm 145 together. And let's read each of these sections together. And so we'll begin with verses 1 through 3. Let's read together. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. 
Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Here in verse 2, we see this quote, I will bless you and praise your name forever. Truly, this is the goal of the whole book of praises, the whole book of psalms, that these songs would teach us how to praise God. And so the first thing I want you to see from here is that the psalms teach us how to praise God. And why is that important? It's important because this is what we were made for. We were made to worship God. We were made to give worth to God. We were made to praise Him. Westminster Catechism question 1 asks, What is the chief end of man? And the answer is that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Chief end to worship, to praise, to glorify and enjoy God forever. This is our chief end and this is what the Psalms teach us. What am I here for? What is this life about? What does any of this mean? Go to the Psalms and begin to find the purpose for your life which is to praise and worship and glorify God. And the Psalms teach you how to do the thing that you were made for. How frustrating is it to be in a position or a place or a circumstance where you're being asked to do something that you don't know how to do. How comforting is it to have someone come along and begin to show you, begin to teach you what this means. And here the book of Psalms begins to teach us how to do what we were made to do, which is to praise God forever and ever. Look at verses 4 through 7. Let's read together. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Now, if you haven't noticed The words that we're reading right now are the words that inform the very first song that we sang together this morning. Oh, great is our God. And there's that line that I love, and though it is in simpler language in the song that we sang this morning than it is here, and we will sing it to our kids, right? That's what this is talking about, that one generation will extol the greatness of God to another. And we know that that's a command from God to us that we should raise our children up in the ways of the Lord. We know that that we were taught to teach them the law of God that they could bind it on their head and their arm and on their heart. But how do we do that? Here, I believe that we find that the Psalms actually teach us how to declare the mighty works of God to our, til- to our children and to teach them of His, hear me, objective, abundant goodness. Did you see that in verse 7? They shall pour forth the fame 
of your abundant goodness. That's connected to verse 4 when it's saying one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. What's happening there is a transference of that purpose of praising and worshiping God and declaring his fame is being transferred from one generation who's handing off the baton to the other generation. And what we see in verse 7 is that that baton was not dropped. That baton was not dropped because now that generation is pouring forth the fame of his abundant goodness. And the book of Psalms teaches us how we are to declare the mighty works of God to our children and how to teach them of God's objective, abundant goodness. Why? Because in the book of Psalms, the songs do not just say, you are good, you are good, you are good, you are good, you are good. but specifically in the Psalms that repeat a refrain like, O Lord, you are good and your love endures forever, that before every refrain of that, O Lord, you are good and your tender loving care endures forever, is a statement of God's objective work that he accomplished on behalf of his people. Do you see the difference between those two things? If we just sing, oh God, you're good, 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 you're good. (laughs) But we don't ever say why he is good. Then our children grow up saying, well, my parents thought he was good, but I saw a lot of junk in the world, and so he must not be good. They thought he was. Maybe he was good for them, but he doesn't have to be good for me. But in the Psalms, we are able to teach our children the objective, abundant goodness of God. Where they can hear us proclaiming the works of this God, which prove His goodness and His faithfulness. And we're called to sing that to every generation. Let's read verses 8 through 9 together. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He has made. That verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Those Psalms teach us of the grace, mercy, and love of God. Especially as we get into the historical narrative of Israel's rebellion. Time and time again through the Psalms, we hear repeated how Israel rebelled against God. If you're reading the Old Testament, you already got through reading all the historical facts. Then we sing about it. How often do we sing about our own rebellion to God? Not as often as we should. Because in singing of Israel's rebellion, what was Israel forced to do? In the midst of their rebellion, God never left them. He never forsake them. 
He never quit calling them His. And so in the midst of singing of their rebellion, it forced them to sing of God's faithfulness. And so as the Psalms teach us of the grace, mercy, and love of God, especially as the historical narrative of Israel's rebellion and redemption, rinse and repeat, is rehearsed over and over and over again through the Psalms. And each one of those redemptions are types of the greatest redemption and sign of God's grace, mercy, and love which was the sending of the Messiah that the Psalms are replete with hope for. In the Psalms, we begin to hear the yearning of God's people for the one who will trample the serpent like we read in Psalm 91 this morning. We begin to hear the cry for the one who will come, the Messiah. And even in Luke 24, as Jesus walked down the road to Emmaus with those disciples, and what did he say? He said that all of the law and the prophets and the Psalms were about Him. Which means what, most importantly, that the Psalms actually, without ever speaking the name by which we know Him, the Psalms actually teach us about Jesus. That Jesus is the king of the book of Psalms. Let's read verses 10 through 13 together. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, verse 13. Your dominion endures through all generations. The Psalms teach us about God's rule in the world, the kingdom He is ruling, the people He is forming by His Word. Why is this important? This is important so that in our own present time, we do not get amnesia and somehow think that we are in this by ourselves and are not actually inheritors of a faith created by God that has been passed down through every generation, a kingdom that He is building that we are a part of. The Psalms teach us about God's rule in the world, the kingdom He is ruling, and the people 
He is forming by His Word. Let's finish the psalm, verses 14 through 21 together, or through 20 actually. We'll stop just short. The Lord is faithful in His words and kind in all His works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. Remember when I say sometimes in one psalm we'll have several of these things, right? But I want you to just look at those verses real quick and run down the list because the psalms also teach us that the Lord is faithful, that He upholds and provides, that He satisfies, that the Lord is righteous, that He is kind, that He is near, that He hears, that He saves all who love Him, that He preserves all who love Him. And then right there at the end, a reminder, just a, a thumbing of the blade of the axe head of the law, reminding us that while He will preserve all those who love Him, that this God of love is also a God of wrath, and He will destroy the wicked. Again, why is this important? Because here at this five-song benediction, at the end of this book of praises, there are 145, 444 psalms before this that many times expressed a sense that the wicked get off scot-free. And here we're reminded that indeed they will not, but that God will be faithful to destroy the wicked. And in the last verse, verse 21, let's read together. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. There's a re repetition of the very first part of this song. A repetition of the goal for which this whole book of praises is about. That we would sing the praises of God forever and ever. But there's something else that we can draw from this. And it's simply this. That the book of Psalms not only teaches us how to praise God. But actually puts the words of those praises in our mouth. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. So much so that in one sense we could say that all of the Bible, including the Psalms, are God's words to us and for us. And yet, in a unique way, listen to this, the Psalms are God's own provision of our own words 
back to him. The whole Bible is God's word to you. And yet, in a unique way, God has provided for you, in the book of Psalms, the very words to pray, to sing, to repeat, to rehearse, so that you will know why you were made, the objective, abundant goodness of your God, that you would understand His grace and His mercy and His love, specifically in the face of His Son, that you would understand your place in the kingdom that He is building, and you would be able, you, without a seminary degree, without going to Bible college, without someone having to try and teach you, but expressing from your own heart the language of the soul that God has provided that you would be able to proclaim in righteousness the faithfulness Provision, satisfaction, righteousness, kindness, nearness, and the salvation, the preserving salvation of the Lord. Don't you want to proclaim those things? Don't you need to proclaim those things to yourself? as well as the people around you? Yes, you do. And you've been commanded to. Even as we read in Ephesians 5, that we are to encourage one another, to admonish one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. May we, over this summer, as we journey through the Psalms together, become more intimate and acquainted with the God of our salvation through the Psalms. And may we, through them, be equipped to pray, to speak, and to praise God for His goodness. Amen? Amen.